Hello there, it's Sam here, and I'm just hopping in before I hand out to Alex for this week's episode. It's a very special episode, um, Total Recall, the 1990 science fiction classic, has been released on 4K for its 40th anniversary, and as a result, Alex was lucky enough to have a chat with Michael Ironside, who plays Richter in the film, and this is their conversation. It goes all over the place, not just Total Recall, there's all sorts of stuff in there. Also, if you want to see it in video form, if you go to our YouTube channel, and there'll be a link in this podcast description, uh, you can see Alex uh, sat there chatting with Michael. Uh, yeah, so I hope you enjoy it, and also if you want to listen to our episode where we reviewed Total Recall, that was this year, back in July, episode 151. I'll pop a link to that as well in the description for this episode so without further ado here is alex and michael ironside with this week's episode thank you It's great to great to meet you. Uh, hello, I, Alex. Like, oh, hello. I can't see you very well there, but uh, I can I can hear you. Why can't? <laughs> What's wrong? No, no. Ah, there you are. There you go. Um, I guess I guess first question really is: Can you believe that Total Recall is thirty years old? And uh, no, that's that's <laughs> you know things. The river flows past; it never stops. You know, and it's amazing how quickly things go by. Yeah. Uh, Why do you think it's had such a kind of long and illustrious legacy? Because it was well made. Yeah? (laughs) It's just full stop. I'm I'm not going to get, no, I'm not going to give you a boilerplate here and go, yeah, man. No, I'm, I basically, I've told everybody I don't have a great memory, so I I don't lie. You know, because (laughs) I I don't, but uh, no, because it's well made. It's very well made. If If you saw the second installment that was made a few years back, um, mm. You really see the difference. No matter how many bells and whistles, flashes and bangs you put in something, that's not going to sell something. Here, hold on a second. Just here. Okay. Okay, thank you. I was swinging a sword around in the last interview because one of the fellows had a katana. Oh. He had a wow. He had a he had a, a, a remake of the katana from Highlander Two, and I actually have one of the old swords. Oh wow! From the movie, I picked, <laughs> I, picked, I picked it up and I clipped myself in the bloody forehead with it. Oh, you know? yeah, some battle but, scars there. <laughs> but uh, no, I think it's a very well, um, well, well crafted, and at the helm of one, Paul Verhoeven film is very, very well told. It's a story that it's well told. Mm. Story is how, everything. How, how did you get involved with it initially? How did I get involved? It's uh, where are you from? Uh, Southeast London. So there's a bit of a bit of a drool there. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, don't be sorry for it. I'm from originally from Toronto, not Toronto, Toronto. But uh, I'm Canadian. Uh, I got involved because uh, my audition for it. I think people had seen me in V, Mm. and uh, and Paul auditioned me for it and stuff like that. And uh, it uh, worked out pretty good. Did you did you met Paul Verhoeven before, or what was he like to work with on that? I was very well. I was. Those are very very fucking dense questions you're asking me. You know, <laughs> Sorry. Like what did you what did you have for lunch the last month? Um, um, no, I had not met Paul before. I was very very aware of his film, so I like spatters and stuff like that. Uh, I knew something about him. Uh, there's no Canadian accent about about about. 
and uh, I knew something about him, and uh, I auditioned. I'm a dick, Dickian. I'm uh, Philip K. Dick. I love his stuff. I come from mm. a lot of, I come from a lot of sci-fi and a lot of literature as a child. Uh, it was one of the escapes we had. I'm from a working class family, and books is how we escaped. Uh, my mm. dad actually, my dad actually took a a third part-time job at a place called Charters Press, where part of the deal was, part of the payment was at night, they would uh, give him the, the runoffs when they're test printing something. So, um, and in those days, back in the 50s and 60s, um, only books in Canada that were sold in Canada had to be printed in Canada. And Charters, yeah. had, Charters had some of the contracts for things like Penguin and some of the other American books, the English books. So I would, he would come home with everything from Lady Chatterley's Lover to um, <laughs> to DC Comics and stuff like that. Yeah. You know? and, uh, and we were allowed to read anything that was in my mom and dad's bed, in the bedroom. The ones that were on the headboard hadn't been read yet, and the ones that were on the floor, they'd been read. And uh, so I read everything. I read Slan, Vought's Slan 1, 2, and 3. I remember reading Lady Chatterley's Lover. I remember reading... Um, Dostoevsky, I remember. I mean, in sci-fi, my grandfather, my dad's father, Findlay, Jock Ironside, was part of the original hundred that were part of the sci-fi club, the sci-fi magazine, mm. before it was published. It, was a, mm. it had everything. It had Frank Herbert involved in those days. So the Beast himself, Alex, was a, was a member of oh, that wow. group. And, they had, and it was a private club that they sent their writing around to. And my grandfather was had an electrical engineer's degree. He's from Aberdeenshire in Scotland. Mm. Uh, he was very obstinate, very well, well, very well um, read and very well educated. Who uh, gave it all up when his wife died when my dad was seven. He just basically sat down and, and poked a bottle of old mull and smoked cigarettes and read books for the rest of his life. Uh, huge influence on me, my grandfather. Mm. But, uh, and my dad, on the other hand, I only got a grade three education. and But, was so well read. It was amazing. My dad could talk, like I said, everything from Velaskovsky down to Terry and the Pirates. My dad and my grandfather. And uh, so sci-fi was my grandfather's. He would. I read Dune, for example, Frank Herbert's script for Dune. I read mm. it out of his. I read it out of his shoebox. <laughs> uh, it had been sent to my grand. A draft wow. of this. A draft of the the book. The first book was sent to my grandfather, and it said, "Jock, have a look through this. See if you can find any bugaboos." Wow. You know, and uh, so I, my brother still got it actually. And oh, not some of the stuff with the Framen and stuff like that was a little bit different in that yeah. draft. But uh, my, they would send stuff to my grandfather because of his electrical engineering background and mm. some of his other stuff, his mechanical engineering. He had a couple of uh, degrees and things. And they, he would go through it and check the science on it and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah. So. I mean, reading, do you know the slam books? Lots of books. No, nine, no. One, two, and three. No. Uh, it's about, um, I won't go into it. It's almost the base for scanners in a funny way. Oh, okay. And, wow. And David probably doesn't know who slam is and stuff, but slams were somebody where the genetics of children and before they were born were played with. And humans were born with antennas like hair. Mm. And yeah. they could read each other's minds and communicate. And they were heralded when they're first born. And then they become, because they're superior to the run of the mill people, they got vilified and mm. hunted down and slaughtered. And uh, it was about this one character through the three books who's trying to get to the head of the world federation mm. to plead his case. 
for the slants. And when he gets there, he finds out that the head of the world organization, if you haven't read the books, I'm giving it away, is actually, That's a, okay. <laughs> he's actually a slant who had cut off his antennae. Oh, okay. And, wow. Uh, so that stuff I read when I was nine. Yeah. And 10 wow. and 11. Yeah. You know, reading Dostoevsky and stuff like that when mm. I was 10. So were you were you surprised how the script for Total Recall changed from the original book? Well, we can get it wholesale. Not really. Um, that story, we can get it for you wholesale. Look, at, I, I was always attracted to Dick because of his paranoia, his schizophrenia, um, some of his drug taking. Uh, Philip K. Dick, if, you, if you're not versed in his stuff, read it. Talk mm. about um, his use of cell phones and stuff and communicators long before yeah. they existed. Um, I'm a, I was a big fan of his. And what Paul did with it, with Paul and the writers and that did with that script is they just took that and expanded it and, mm. and, and used it, I think, as a bit of a... I, I feel bad. I don't want to talk about what Paul was doing. What attracted me to the story was the breadth mm. of the story and how I saw it as a political story. I, oh, saw, okay. it as a, I saw it as a comment on politics mm. i got it saw it as a comment on you know that uh we're all being sold pipe dreams mm. you know, yeah that's yeah. how you get how you get control and money yeah know, through these devices through, mm. through this you know, <laughs> you know life isn't as you really see it there's real life and then there's the life that they promise to us like carrots in front of us to keep yeah I, st- I mean it's definitely, I think, one of the greatest kind of tricks it pulls is that at the beginning, you think your character and Schwarzenegger's Quaid, they seem like they're two different people, but by the end, they're pretty much the same person. I mean, they they, they both work for Cohagen, they're both they're both in it as, you know, if you believe that it's all real, it's, you know, that they're both the same. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting... Uh, dealing with duality, dealing, dealing with, the, you know, your how the corporate presence in the world runs us things like that you know yeah but uh talking about what the story's about i think the audience is you know that's the great thing about an audience is like i think it was duchamp that said you have three equal parts there's the material there's the the creation like the artist and the material there's the creation Mm. then there's the audience and they're all equal if the audience and the material goes in a second in a certain direction the artist mm. in the original material, they're left out on an island by themselves. Duchamp, like, you know, and Duchamp was a very smart fellow. He did everything from classical, neoclassical painting all the way through nudes, extending a staircase to found objects and art. And he finally ended up playing chess at the end of his life because he thought there was a variable, true artist. You mm. know, but he believed that there were equal parts. And I agree with that. I think if an audience picks up a piece of material and you've done your best to tell a story and they find a different vehicle there they find a different platform to allow them the whole idea mm. is to is to i think invigorate and, and, and hopefully uh, whether it's spiritual or physical educate people in some way yeah yeah i'm not yeah. in it for i'm not in it for the stand in line shake hands and get awards and never mm. you know, no i've always thought that someday they're going to find out who i am and send me home <laughs> I really did believe that it was uh, for the longest time. But, uh, <laughs> even though I've trained very hard, and, uh, because I just I ran away and joined the circus when I was very young, and that's what I see. Mm. As, you know, uh, Paul's an incredible storyteller. Yeah, 
I think definitely, like you say, Verhoeven definitely can make a film that can work on this level of entertainment, but it can also work on these massive other levels. Something like Robocop or Starship Troopers, which you're also in, like those films have got so much going on, but you can just see them as just pure visual blockbuster entertainment if you want, you know. Or they can just be a piece of shit. Look at, look at um, being a director, and I, I don't give a fuck whether they believe me or not, or like the metaphor. It's like being an incredible chef, mm. a chef that cooks food. The whole idea is to new, give somebody nutrients over that and, and to have an effect on them and stuff like that. And, and then, you know, and, but it all depends on how it looks, how it tastes, mm. how you present it, how it's the, you know, the diatribe around, you know, being served up to you and stuff. You know, a lot of things that look shiny and good and stuff like that just don't taste right. You know, <laughs> it takes it takes a real artist to be able to go from the raw material mm. to the presentation to actually having something of value that you want yeah. to finish everything that's on your plate and you want more. Yeah. You know, the idea of, I think of a good film is you leave the theater wanting more. Mm. You know, yeah. you, come, you know, and, and there's, like I've, I've said it over and over and over again. Like, you know, I've done, I've worked with over 300 different directors. There's only like five of the classes, true artist directors, mm. that they're in charge of every aspect of what they're doing. Yeah. They're aware enough. They're true yeah. artists. Yeah. You know, and Paul's one of them. Yeah. Paul's very much in charge. You know, I remember Paul giving a speech at, uh, on Total Recall when we did the arrival. It's kind of a funny one, actually. My youngest, my oldest daughter was 12 at the time. We're down at Chiribuski Studios in Mexico at that time. Uh, we did the whole film there and uh, took over the whole studio of six farms and stuff. And we did the Mars arrival sequence where we're coming through and you know, with the fat lady mm. the head, you know, and all that stuff. And uh, we did, and it was set up as a steady cam shot where you come off the elevator, we come off the arrival vehicle, we come through, integrate. And, immigration and all that stuff to go right up and then I stop and I turn around and go Quaid you know <laughs> all on, yeah it's all it's all one shot and we were doing that we were doing that we're going through and we did it about three times four times I think maybe three four and Paul said I want I want to talk to everybody and I this is not meant to embarrass Paul this is a good example and he said and it was about a month I think into the production at that time of five six months shoot and he said, I want everyone. He called in all the crew and the cast was there. He called everyone in. He said, look, look. And this blue sweater on that he had tied around. I remember he was pulling on the arm, tied around his waist. He said, this is a very difficult shoot. It's a very, you know, it's necessary that everyone do the job. Do what you're hired for. You know, we're all in this together. And it, it, if there's one person, you let everyone else down. And he started talking. And he worked himself into this huge, visceral, you know, like, you know, you, you're letting people down if you don't do what you can do. You know, you were hired to do a specific job. If you can't fucking do your job, let me know and you can go home. No problems. I pay you off, you go home. We get somebody who's willing to do it. Because <laughs> if you can't fucking do your job, what are you doing here? Brother? And I'm kind of blending into the scenery. I'm just sort of standing. You know, yeah. everyone's kind of shuffling because he was very passionate. You know, he's like, and he's not a madman. You know, he's, he was <laughs> very passionate. And I was thinking, what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, in one of those breaths where he's doing this, and like that, and everyone's like, he had about 100 crew and cast and, and extras every step. Yeah. There. And all of a sudden, in, in one of his breaths, when it's all quiet, you heard somebody go, <laughs> stifle a laugh. And I went, who the fuck is stupid? <laughs> 
And he stopped and he looked around and he looked to the back of the, to behind him off the set. It was my daughter, 12 years old, sitting in his chair. <laughs> wow. And he, started, and he turned and everyone looked at me and he turned and started heading for it. He said, you think this is funny? You think this is a fucking joke? You think this is crazy time here? You think... And he's walking towards her, and I'm, I thought, here goes my career. Because I started after him. I started right behind him because I headed off after yeah. him. Yeah. I got to stop him before he does anything. You know, <laughs> I'm about to fucking nail the director if he touches my fucking daughter. And, he go, and he's saying stuff like, you think this is funny? You think this is a joke? You think this is a... And just as he was about to get to his chair that she's sitting in very casual, she says, yeah. you got your shot, didn't you? <laughs> wow and he, and he stopped like a train and he and literally quite calmly went yeah yeah I got my shot yeah, you're right he, he said uh, have you read the script and she goes no he says get off my set and don't come back until you've read the script wow and, says, and she said she says that's fair that's fair she got up out of his chair and walked off <laughs> and then he turned around and I'm right behind him and he turned around and he looked at me and went and smiled, and I realized that it had been a performance. Wow! Yeah, everything everything he was doing was to get the dramatics of the. In yeah. my opinion, it was a total performance. Yeah, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." He said, and he looked at me, and he <laughs> smiled, and he leaned over to everybody. He said, "You've all been told." <laughs> she said, "So we're going to do now. We're going into coverage on this thing. Print those last two takes, and walked. He just smiled at me." The next yeah. morning, we were staying at the Nico Hotel in Mexico City. This huge modern hotel, um, about 30 or 40 clicks from the studio. And we had been pretty well taken over. We were the thing at that time. We had the crew and cast and all these. You know, Arnold had a, a top floor in the place with somebody. He's a great guy. Arnold's like a, a, good, a very good acquaintance of mine. And... Um, and I come down in the morning because it was one of, you know, it was one of those things where I actually had a morning to sleep in. Very rarely I slept in. Mm. And I, I would have, I was on set most of the time and constant running and chasing scenes and stuff. Yeah. And I got up and I was able to sleep in and my daughter was in this next, she had a, a I had a, it's like a three room suite. She had a bedroom off the suite in the next room. And I knocked on the door, the side door, and I opened up the door and the, her bed was empty. And I went, Adrian, where are you? Dooch, her nickname was Dooch. Dooch, where are you? She's not there. So I thought she'd gone down. So I go down to the lobby of the hotel. I'm looking for her. She's not in the restaurant. She's not anywhere. And I go to the front security guys and they said, Is eight, have you seen Avery? She oh yeah, she went in on the first car. I went, What? This is like <laughs> eight o'clock. She went in at five thirty in the morning. I went, Wow. She's gone to work. She's gone to she's, yeah. She went in with the, the first crew. And I went. So I quickly got dressed and everything like that. And I rush off to the studio. I get a car, I get back down to the studio. And I walk in, and there's her and Paul sitting. He had a chair for it beside him. And they were going through the script, and she was asking him questions. And he was no. teaching her. He was sharing yeah. with her. Not would he be. He wouldn't share the public shit with me, but he's teaching her. Wow. And uh, and he goes, he looked at me as I walked up. And I remember Toot said, hi, Dad. And uh, and I said, so you read the script? She goes, yeah, I read yours last night. And I went, uh-huh. And Paul said, Paul looked at me and smiled, and he said, aren't you in? You're not in until noon. <laughs> and uh and i went yeah 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 he says very smart daughter you have here he said she's uh she's really going to be something 
He said, uh, well, if you're here, you might as well go in the makeup. He says, well, maybe I'll catch you on something. <laughs> and uh, go on, go on, we're working. Go. And he dismissed me. <laughs> well, he's sitting there. Wow. He my, pulled a chair up my dog. And that's, yeah. one of my, that's one of my favorite memories from Puerto Rico. Yeah. I, I have thousands of memories, but one of those yeah. is, and that's Paul Verhoeven. That's Paul mm. being absolutely in charge. He's, he's, oh God, he's just such a deaf storyteller. Mm. You know, nothing happens without him, without his approval. Yeah. You know, and yeah. if, and that's what storytelling is. Look at, and I know I'm using up a lot of your time and stuff like that. No, it's look, fine. No. Look at, look at since, since the beginning of time, the sun goes down, it gets dark and tribal. Filmmaking is tribal. Storytelling is mm. tribal. You know, the sun goes down, somebody lights a fire and everyone sits around the fire before they go to sleep and the elders get up and tell stories. Mm. And they're used to be educational. They're told to the ring of people, the young ones and the people and their legends or whatever, the cave painting legends or whatever. But the story is necessary because it's a teaching tool. It passes yeah. morals, morals, ethics, and education down. And that's why theaters, I think, are so important for movies and mm. stuff. You know, whether it's live theater or if it's movie theaters, because when the lights go down and the fire comes up, we all sit there and wait to be told the story. You know, mm. We're partially education, partially, whether it's visceral or whatever. And bad storytelling... I don't care how many times you go to the theater. Somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, you can tell. The audience starts yeah. to squirm. You know, no matter how much flash and bang and color and special effects, if you don't have story. Yeah. You know. I remember. Yeah. I, for, I remember. I was talking about earlier, and I forgot all about. It. Do you remember the film "Wait Until Dark"? Uh, no, I haven't seen that. Oh, you should. It's like Audrey Hepburn. She plays a blind woman in mm. Greenwich Village, who. Um, has come across something in a, that was given to her that was necessary for some very bad people that want right. it. And it's yeah. an object with either a lot of drugs or a lot of money or something in it. And she's blind. And uh, and and how they try to get it off her. Mm. And uh, how the police come and are they really the police? And how she's very... And eventually the bad guy is actually Alan Arkin very early in his career. Oh, Alan okay. Arkin yeah. is a bad guy. And he's very, very fucking convincing in this role. And he gets in there, and to be on same ground as him, but to take away his ability, she takes all the lights, breaks all the light bulbs in her apartment. Oh, okay, in this, yeah. In this ground floor apartment in Greenwich. Mm. And uh, and he's in there in the dark and everything like that. And she's deaf. She's now got the upper hand because she's, mm. she's, she's stone blind. And there's one point in the theater, everyone's rooting for her, and then all of a sudden you hear the milk bottle shake in the fridge. And all of a sudden, you, he's been, he's because he's been hit and he's had laundry detergent thrown on him and everything like that. All oh, of a sudden, okay. he's, like the, he's like this squatting fucking pariah animal on the floor. <laughs> and the fridge door opens and it swings open and the fridge light comes on and mm. it lights up the set. And I remember squirming everyone. In the, and I, I saw it more than once because I remember being amazed. Where does the audience, where, is the, where are the control points in that story? But mm. everyone's squirming in their seats going, oh, oh, oh Jesus, because of the empathy they have for the lead character, you know? Yeah. And, and we're in the dark being told a story by an elder. Yeah. Looking at the Yeah. Man, you know? And it's the yeah. commonality of that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're talking about kind of great directors, and I'm, you've, 
you mentioned Cronenberg before because mm-hmm. um, he took. I mean, he worked for he worked on a version of Total Recall for years. Yeah, I heard like, that. I heard. Yeah, that. I've been asked, "What do I think would be the difference?" Yeah, I just kind of having worked with him, I wondered if, if you could kind of get in the mindset of what he would have you done with, with David, it. Or, you, what I had worked with him, or you? Yeah, with you him? having you worked with him. Well, I worked with David very early, him. very early on in my mm-hmm. career. You know, and uh, in the late sixties, um, late seventies. Uh, mm. 78, 79, I think. Because it took a while to get scanners out. We did reshoot down Yeah. There, uh, I was only hired for a very small part in that film, and it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. Um, David's a master storyteller. The difference between, uh, and I don't, I wouldn't, telling this is like I said, putting my dick on an anvil and giving somebody a hammer. You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even presume to know what goes on in David or go into, it goes on in Paul yeah. and stuff. But there's storytelling from my experiences of it. David is very interior. Mm. Very, David is attracted to the paranoid, what goes on in somebody, how they see the world, how they, how they operate oh, okay. in that world and stuff like that. Yeah. Very interior, you know, um, most of his storytelling and stuff is from, you know, um, I actually think he does better when he does other people's material. I find mm. that much more compelling. Um, that's just my personal taste and stuff. But uh, Paul doesn't. Paul's more of a social, political, everything across the board. He doesn't spend a lot of time inside the character's head looking through mm. the character's eyes. You know, yeah. David tries to give you an insight into the emotional turmoil or the complexities of uh, emotional mental disease, maybe. You know? mm. A lot of his stuff deal with that paranoia, that introspective kind of thing. Paul's very much more the landscape. Yeah. Talks about yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and again, that's on a very, very shallow comparison, those two. But I think yeah. we would have spent we would have spent more time on David, you know like a Dick, Philip K. Dick um, suffered from, as they say he suffered from. You know, schizophrenia, massive depressions, chemical use, mm. uh, bipolar, lost his twin sister when he was younger, uh, felt alone most of his life and stuff like that. Died of a massive uh, heart attack or brain hemorrhage or whatever. Um, that side of Dick's material would have attracted, mm. I think, what David looks at. Yeah, yeah. And what Mr. Yeah. Verhoeven would look at is his how that operates in society, how that interacts in society. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's my, that's my 10 cents on it. That's no, that's great. Version. No, that's the, that's the five minute version. Yeah. I've been uh, asked to, I, I, what would absolutely been interesting is to see David yeah. on that material. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, Paul, Paul has a way of literally seeing an overview. Yeah. He's a, to me, he's like, he's almost like a, uh, a Ridley Scott in a lot of ways. He takes mm. that overview of something. You know, they're completely yeah. different storytellers, but there's yeah. that. I, I, stop. I better stop. Yeah. I've, never I've, been asked, I've been asked to wrap up, but I guess, because you were talking about science fiction books and your love and passion of them, is there a book, a sci-fi book, that you'd love to be involved with bringing to the screen or that hasn't oh, been all my life to the screen? I want, all my life, I wanted to be Gurney Hallett. Oh, okay. From Dune. And, uh, <laughs> wow, okay, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. like, having read her, Frank Herbert's um, Dune from a shoebox when I was like yeah. 11 years old and stuff like that, you know, and uh, uh, I had a shot at it when they were doing it in Mexico and, and uh, when Rafael De Laurentiis was doing it, when she yeah. was producing it. And originally we had uh, 
Max von Sydow. We had Jane Fonda yeah. playing Jessica. Oh, wow. Um, I was offered the part of Gurney Halleck, and I said, that's a fucking movie. You know? Yeah. And um, I would love to do it. And I was all pumped up for it very early in, in it was early in the 80s, um, 85, 84, mm. 85, right just be, around or just before Total Recall. And then what happened is Jane Fonda got ill. Marlon Brando was going to play that Baron Harkonian. Oh, God. Wow. Yeah. That would have been insane. <laughs> yeah. You know, Jane pulled out because of some medical reason. She needed a delay for a couple of months or something. There's more to that. I, I found out later mm. on and stuff. Um because of that, Brando pulled out. He thought it was, uh, he either knew something was up or got, he got into whatever Brando got into in those mm. days. And everything started to fall apart. And the film was postponed. And I got offered Extreme Prejudice with Walter Hill mm. and Nick Nolte, Powers Blues, Maria Conchita So I went off and did that instead. And just yeah. after, we were about four weeks into shooting on Extreme Prejudice in El Paso, Texas, just outside El Paso, Sunland, Texas. And we get a call that, uh, Raffaella got it going again. She wanted to know if I would come. Yeah. Back. Wow. And I said, oh, fuck. <laughs> it was like my stomach just went. <laughs> I mean, you know, her Gurney Halleck. I remember my grandfather saying that he was a character who could. Uh, him and him and Frank Herbert talked about creating the the two, the two knights that would check that would look after the prince, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. But, Gurney was going to be Duncan Idaho was the beauty and the flash and the, the face. Yeah. And Gurney was the paranoid kind of manic depressive who could, you know, go on a rage or he could also play the lute and make the stars cry. Mm. You know, he was that he was that diverse character. And I totally identified with him. Yeah. So I couldn't do it. And they went and uh, I heard, and here's a little bit of tip, I don't know if you know this, that uh uh Ray Milant Ray uh, Aldo Ray was hired to play Gurney Halleck. He had been sober mm. off drugs and alcohol, I heard, for about a year at that time, or 18 months. And he was hired to do Gurney Halleck. And he got on the plane in Los Angeles, arrived in in, in, uh, in Mexico City drunk. <laughs> and they met, him, they met him at the plane. And Raphael, yeah. I think Raphael, part of his deal was that as long as he was sober, he was fine and stuff. And... Uh, she literally didn't. He never got out of the airport. They turned around, put him back on a plane, mm. back to L.A. And an actor who was hired to be one of the Siths, uh, totally unknown at the time, at the point, mm. not unknown, but not unknown around the world, was a young actor named Patrick Stewart. Yeah, <laughs> who got hired to play yeah. a version of play a version of Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck rolled into one. Yeah, he was elevated from playing one of the Siths. Yeah, to playing to playing that role, and you know, and the rest of the story is all in popcorn. Mm. So that would have been your dream. That would have been what you would have yeah, done. I'm way too old. I would probably play the Baron Arconian <laughs> now. If I, had <laughs> I can't. I can't wait to see Gilles Villeneuve. Um, yeah, very, it's uh, the fellow Canadian, uh, mm. you know, out of Montreal, Quebec. Uh, very, very death story. A lot like Cronenberg. I think Villeneuve mm. and Cronenberg have a lot together. They have that. Mm. Sense, you almost feel like it's a visceral story when you come out of this. Yeah, you can feel it. You can feel it on you. You know, good or bad. Yeah. You can. You yeah. can smell the perfume in the bedroom. You can feel the sheets. You know, mm. and you can also feel the cold hand of the killer when it runs its hand through your hair. Both of them have that ability. They're very good. Yeah, I've never worked with them, but I love his work. And uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing this. This doom. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And, uh, yeah. The talk is, is it's going to be the new Star Wars. I don't know if you can sell toys of... <laughs> No, <laughs> the makers, you know, I, not really. Not really, you know. But uh, no, it's but an interesting idea if that's where yeah, we're going. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's like, <laughs> look what I bought you, son, for Christmas. Ooh, what <laughs> oh my God, it's a maker, you know. It's a, and it has real spice coming out its ass, you know. That the original book, my grandfather explained that, that was a metaphor for North America. And oh wow! World. Okay, yeah, and for the world is that the. The spice and the sand and the fremen was Palestine. Spices, oil, uh, oh. the land of trees and yeah. water. Duke, you know, uh, where Max von Sydow came from was North America. And if you yeah. look at all the different people that are fighting in the universe, mm. uh, again, it was a political metaphor. Yeah, wow. sci-fi has always been an, an, an opportunity to tell stories. They're all westerns, for example. Mm. They're just westerns. You put them yeah. in a format. If you want to make social comedy, you have to put it in a format. That people feel comfortable. Considering. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. If, you, if you're going to bring them to the fire and have them sit down, you got to tell them a story that entertains, viscerally moves mm. them, emotionally engages them, and hopefully mm. educates them a little bit. Yeah. Or, and like I said, if you take a look at the the latest Star Wars or the latest Total Recall, with all of yeah. flash and bang and flag waving, mm. and the, it doesn't hold you. No. Squirm, you squirm in your seats after 25 minutes. No, no. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't live up at all to the original. No. And the original still looks great, and it still, yeah, it still tells that story and entertains. So, but yeah. that's the difference. That's the difference between having a a crafted storyteller at the helm who mm. knows what they're doing and where they're going and never gets lost in the forest. Yeah, and a lot of money that's put in the wrong things. Yeah, <laughs> in my opinion. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, no. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. And um, right, I think they asked me. Yeah, they asked me to wrap up. Well, good morning. Yeah, good morning to you. And yeah, it's kind of good yeah, night. It's midday. It's getting it's getting midday now. So. Oh, okay. Thank you. I hope I gave you something. Yes, you definitely did. No, thank you so much. Thanks and, very uh, much, Alex. Yes, thank you. Well, and yes, well, Alex, thank you. Take care. thank you for listening to this special edition of uh, science fiction rating system uh, as i say total recall it's out the 23rd of november the collector's edition and it's packed full of insane extras uh, get your hands on it you can also listen to our review uh, of the film on one of our older podcasts and um, we will see you next week back to our regular presentation thank you goodbye